We've been doing a series about hidden people in the Bible. Is that right? Over the um, last weeks? Hidden people. There's nothing really hidden about Dorothy. Fancy her having food left over from a feast. That was great, eh? But you know, I had COVID and one of the first people to bring me food was Dorothy. That was great. However, during the week, I was by myself and there was plenty of food. A few others brought soup and healthy stuff. But I'd go to the fridge and I'd open nothing. Cheese, olives, vegetables, fruit. I'd close it again. Because you're, if you're there all day and all night by yourself, what do you want? Macintosh. Junk food. <laughs> Snacks. So my sister-in-law rang up and she said, do you need anything? I said, no, I've got plenty of stuff, plenty of food. People are being kind. Then I sent a text and said, do you know what would really be good? Junk food. Snacks. So my brother came with two shopping bags. And there's still some left over. <laughs> Interesting about food and drink and weddings. I think we've had a few weddings lately. Toby here tonight? Not, no? Yeah? How long did the wedding go? How about your wedding that you had, Paris? How long was it? How, how, you know, it was usually a day. A whole day. Last year I went down to a wedding at St Helens and the wedding started on the Friday night. That's when it was the official bit. And it went right through to the Monday. Yeah. That was great. A few, a few of you were there. But you know, in Jesus' time, and even today in some cultures, weddings go from three plus to days to seven days. And they just come together and eat and tell stories and drink, and they sleep there, and they dance and sing, have a great time. And so one of the very first occasions where we come across Jesus in his ministry is at a wedding. And he's there with a few of his disciples. So we've read John 2 this morning, just now. Thanks very much, Lucas, for reading that. And uh, John 2 comes after John 1, of course, that's pretty logical. And in John 1, we've got the baptism of Jesus, where John baptized his cousin, and something special happened. And John said, look, there's Jesus. Look, there's the Lamb of God. Strange comments. And then Jesus called a few disciples, and they followed him. Four, in fact. They probably were disciples of John, and now they're just hanging around Jesus, wondering who this man is. But anyhow, they go to a wedding. Everyone goes to the wedding. You don't get an invitation. You just go in the village. Your culture, too? Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. They're good, aren't they? Great. Um, I won't get sidetracked on different weddings, but never mind. He went to this wedding along with his mother and some friends and brothers and possibly four of his new followers uh, who were hanging around with him. And three days into the wedding, the caterers, who were possibly all the women, 
And it's highly probable that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was in charge of catering. And she noticed that the wine was running out. Now, this may not seem tragic in our day. We'd probably think, great, no one will get drunk. <laughs> It'll be even better. But bearing in mind, wine was the common drink, okay? Cleaner than water. And uh, so three days in, the wine is running out. And I don't know how much longer they had to still go in this wedding. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, notices. Now, the sad thing about wine running out is that it is a culture of shame. And the bride and the bridegroom would be remembered every day of their life as the people who got married who didn't have enough wine for the people, a shame. And that would be how they'd be remembered in the community. And so, of course, Mary, who's probably related or part of the village, or it's only about an hour's walk from Nazareth where they were, she probably felt very strongly and she felt agitated that they hadn't catered enough. So she goes over to her son, Jesus and says, the wine's run out. It's pretty big, the wine's run out. So Jesus says something very, very interesting. He says, woman, what is that to you? My hour has not yet come. But I want to go back to Mary. Why on earth would she go to Jesus with this problem? Did she expect Jesus to run down the shop, the bottle shop, and get some more wine? Or pop over to the vineyard and pick some more grapes and tread them? What did she expect Jesus to do? I want to tell you that Mary was a mother who miraculously conceived a child through the Holy Spirit. And she had all this stuff going on inside her heart and memory. It says she treasured them in her heart. She pondered things. She thought over them. She knew that Jesus was different. And she had just witnessed a baptism and probably a little bit of gossip with what went on. And Jesus leaving home and having a few other friends and these things going. And she remembered some prophecies that had been spoken over him at the temple when he was young about how he'd suffer, but also about how he'd bring joy to all of these people. So she had a history of memories, and she wanted to push Jesus into doing something, a special child. It's time. You got a mother like that? I want you to perform right now. Do it. <laughs> and so Jesus just says, woman, what is that to you? Now, that might sound in our culture very rude. When was the last time you called your mother woman? <laughs> but it is actually a term of deep respect and honor. It's a little bit like moving from mummy, mum, mother. You got that idea? And it happens as you get a little bit older. You don't talk about my mummy to your friends now. You usually say, my mother. Is that right? 
but still the relationship's there, but you're a little bit older and it's changed and you're not crying out for your mummy to pick you up at this age. Although sometimes we do cry for our mummies. So it was a term of respect, woman. It's the same thing that Jesus said when he was on the cross and he saw his mother there and John, the disciple that he loved, and he said, woman, this man will, take, will look after you. Same word, woman. So don't, don't get afraid and upset about what Jesus is saying here. But now he says the time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Jesus is here taking the control away from his mother for his own life and mission. He's taking control of it here. And his mother needs to keep being the observer in his life. And he doesn't argue, it's respect, he's aware of the issue, but the mother has expectations that her son can do something about it. So she says to the servants, hey, do what he says. Whatever he says, you go and do it. Now remember, she's probably a big mama in charge of the catering, and uh, she said, do whatever he tells you. Now, the servants, and they are my hidden people tonight. They're the hidden people. I'm talking about servants tonight because who knows their names? I don't. And it's just a little phrase, the servants. And yet they're there for us all to read, hidden people of the Bible. They had no option but to obey the servants. They've just got to do what the person in charge says. They were obedient, but how did they feel? What would you do? Now, this, these jars held about anything from 75 litres to 110 litres. That's a lot of water, okay? How many jars were they? Can't remember. I can't either. I'll have a little look. Fill them up. Six. So that's a lot of water. I said, can you imagine what, the, what would you be doing? What would you be saying? Oh, this queer woman, this man, this lady, just told us to go and fill up the water jars and there were no wine. Wait until we start pouring that out. They'll be in for a shock and we might lose our heads. Fill it with water? Okay. Can you imagine the conversation? It would have taken a while because it's a lot of water. They didn't have running taps or a hose. So then they're told to pour it out. And I'm not really sure what was going through their minds or whether they just did a blank we will obey, we will just do it. So they pour out the water in the containers and people start raving about the wine. And the master of ceremonies comes over and says, what's happening? Usually you, you drink the worst stuff last. You get, you know, give them the best stuff, but you get the best to last. So the master of ceremonies takes credit and he gives credit to the groom to the family the servants were just being servants who knew what had happened who was going to tell who would believe Jesus sat with his disciples who takes the credit Jesus didn't stand up and say it's me, it's me. When you want any wine, just come to me, I'll turn it into water. <laughs> oh, other way around. 
Just checking that you're awake. You want some more? Want food? Oh, I can do it. No, Jesus didn't do that. He just sat down. The credit wasn't even taken by the servants who were obedient. The mother didn't take it. And I'm sure that those who were around Jesus were looking at him. Who is this guy? It says that the disciples who were with him started to believe. This was the first sign, the first miracle. So who takes the credit? The master of ceremonies, the groom, the groom's family. But who knows what really happened? I'm not even sure that Mary knew. She just knew that Jesus could do something. And she said, whatever he says, you obey, you do it. And they did. I don't know what their attitude was like, but they did it. They obeyed. Because the role of a servant is to obey. But here's my next question. Who is affected by this maybe grumbling, funny act of obedience? Everyone. They sit back and they enjoy it. And they have no idea, most of them, no idea where this good wine has come from. So what do I learn about Jesus here? I just got to do a sideways, even though it's about the hidden people. I learned that Jesus was very ordinary here. There's nothing over special. His mother knows. She is wondering. John the Baptist is aware. Some of the disciples are getting to, yeah, wonder. But he hasn't done much teaching yet. It's just been a baptism a word by John, a time at home with Jesus. This is the first miracle, and I want you to get this. The first miracle that Jesus did was at a party, at a wedding. He is not a spoiled sport. Jesus is about the ordinary, everyday, fun things in life, as well as the hard things. And if we can take him to our parties, I think that's great. Wine at a party, as we know, was a big deal. So although he is here, he's not going to be a spoil sport, what he's really doing is saving the wedding couple from a lifetime of shame. Isn't that wonderful? Saving them from a lifetime of shame. I think Jesus does that for us today as well. Jesus would not be rushed or controlled. My time has not yet come. I'll do it in my time. He allows others to take the credit. He sat back and he enjoyed himself. He was at the party. But what do I learn about the servants? They were just being servants. Nothing else, just servants. Matthew 10, 24 says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, and a slave is not above his master. Paul, one of the great missionaries, evangelists, teachers of the New Testament, was not ashamed to say, I am a slave of Jesus. There are two words in Greek for servant or slave. We don't always know in the New Testament which one they're using. One is just the lowest form of slave you can have, doulos. And the other is diakolos, servant, but they're both sometimes translated servant. 
Jesus acted like a servant to us many times. He washed disciples' feet. That was one of the lowest forms of a servant. You know, there's a hierarchy of servants. The lowest one was to wash feet, and Jesus did that. Paul said, I'm a slave, I'm a servant of Jesus. These servants at the wedding knew what their relationship to their master meant, what it was meant to be. There's a lovely little psalm in 123, and it says this, To you, O God, I lift up my eyes, to the one who's enthroned in the heavens. As the eyes of a servant look to the hand of the master, and as the eyes of the maid look to the hand of the mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he has mercy on us. These are servants who loved their master or mistress. And what they're waiting for is not to be told what to do, but to get there before they're told, just to watch a hand movement or an eye movement, like, you know, that kind of stuff. They knew their masters or mistresses so much that they could read the little movements, and they wanted to be pleasing the mistress or the master before being asked. Have you ever been in a situation where you were going to do something really kind, like set the table, and just as you're going to do it, what does your mother say? Set the table. And what does it do to you? Not doing it. It just produces a little bit of rebellion. Is that right? Yeah. Well, you get there before being asked, and then don't react if you are asked. What I discovered, too, is that we look to the Lord our God, who's our master, until he has mercy on us. The third thing I learned about these servants, that they were just being servants, they knew what their relationship meant, but their obedience brought joy to many. Isn't that great? Their obedience brought joy to many. What about my relationship with Jesus? My relationship with Jesus. I know Jesus is my saviour. Yours too? Rescuer, deliverer. He saved me from my sin and shame. He's my friend, the one who is with me. He's not ashamed to be called my brother. Lovely relationship. But he is also my Lord and Master. Totally different relationship. So I have these relationships with Jesus. In this relationship with Jesus as Lord or Master, the response is always obedience. But it's not much use being obedient till I know that I am in the relationship. Because trying to win God's approval doesn't get it. But being in the relationship, I get it. I want to be your master. I want to be your servant. I want to be your master, your Lord, says Jesus. The scripture tells us in a little book called Philippians that one day, one day, Every knee in all of creation will bow their knee before Jesus and call him Lord. That will be a day when there's no choice but to call him Lord. But we tonight have choice to bow our knee. 
before our God, before our Jesus, and call him Lord, and to be his servant. Paul and Timothy called themselves servants of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote something like this. I don't think the text is up there. But it said something like, we are born to be slaves, got it? Slaves to sin. We can't help it. We just do it. Whether we want to or not, it just so happens that we can't do it. Yes, I'll set the table. You tell me to set the table. And immediately, I don't want to do it anymore. Uh, the fence says, wet paint, don't touch. What do you do? Oh, it is. <laughs> Something in us that just can't do it. We're slaves to sin, to our addictions, to the problems that we have. And uh, Paul says this leads to death. But you can choose to obey God when you're in that relationship with him. And that obedience leads to righteous living. Thank God. Once you were slaves to sin. Once I was a slave to sin. But now I am a slave to Jesus. And I choose to live the righteous life. I want to talk about the power of the ordinary. Because these servants, were servants and slaves, are the most ordinary that you can get, okay? Ordinary. Probably no pay. Living conditions, I don't know. Some were better off than others. No guarantee. No nine-to-five job. They were ordinary. They knew their place. They knew who they were. With these servants who were very ordinary, a lot of people enjoyed their act of obedience and were able to celebrate with good wine. What about you? I love the phrase, radical ordinariness. Ordinaries who are radical. Whatever he tells you to do, just do it. It may be a smile. It may be crossing over three steps to say hello to someone else and inviting them in to your little group of friends. It may be something that is just very ordinary, like picking up a piece of paper, putting it in the rubbish. Maybe a smile. Maybe more than that. Maybe setting the table before your mother asks, but anyhow. Ordinary. We can be radical ordinaries. That's all we are asked to do. In Romans 12, it says in your every day, in your eating and sleeping, you're working, you're coming and going, give yourselves to God. Radical ordinariness. We are little people in a big world. I've got some seeds here. This is an acorn. I love acorns. I pick up acorns. I carry them around. You know, I'm just that kind of person. Right outside of where I live, there's a reserve, and they've tried their hardest to do an avenue of oak trees. Well, right outside our place, they're on their fourth one because it dies every year. And they said this will be the last. 
but they've, they, they, and they're at different spaces, and they don't put them in until they're about this high. They need a lot of radical care. Oak trees are hard to grow. But you see their seeds everywhere. Is that right? When the, you know, you crunch them and they're all around. Very, very few of them actually go into the ground and become an oak tree. An oak tree is majestic. An oak tree is incredibly spectacular as a tree. But it takes an awful lot to get there. I've got a seed here. And it's just a common little nasturtium. Anyone seen those? Colourful, they just grow all over the place. They don't, and you can eat them, by the way, if you're into that. Um, seeds, they just go. But you know, they're ordinary. Nasturtium, who would buy a nasturtium? This one is Allison, just another ground cover. Once you've got it, you've got it forever. And it's purple or white or pink, and it just goes everywhere. Tiny, tiny seeds. There's probably about 20 or 30 seeds in that. Now, this is the one that amazes me because the bees are always at this flower. And the bees come, and there's these tiny little insignificant ordinary seeds that will only ever become what's in their DNA to become, pollinate other vegetables, trees, plants. They have that power within them. The birds and the bees come. And they might even end up in your honey, if you're lucky. But it has power. It's ordinary. And it doesn't take very much. Just a bit of wind or the bird. One more seed here. This one here is from uh, my bay tree. You know what a bay tree is? The only thing that a bay tree is useful for, apart from giving shelter to the birds and the bees, very ordinary, is actually adding flavor to food. You shove in the leaves, and something magic happens with the flavour. Once they've given the flavour, you don't ever put the leaves on anyone's plate. You take the leaves and chuck them out. But they've fulfilled their purpose. Ordinary, radical people that maybe no one will ever hear of, but about you, you have the potential to affect many people with your joy, with your smile, with your love of Jesus, through being his, through the relationship. First of all, having him as your savior, where you say, yep, I'm a sinner. I get it wrong. I'm broken. I do wrong stuff. I rebel. I can't do it. I submit myself to you. Submit to you. And you become my Lord and my master, and I want to be your radical servant who obeys, who does what you ask me to do. And people will notice that you're different, you're radical, you're ordinary, and it's radical, ordinary people that change the world. Are you up for it? That's the invitation.
Let me pray. Thank you. Thank you that you are our saviour, our friend, our brother, and yet you are the Lord of lords, the King of kings. And tonight, we want to surrender and submit to you again by giving you the control over our lives and learning to live in obedience to you. Lord, take our ordinary lives and make them radically different in this very hostile and unfriendly world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.